0: start off with sovereign election. I just got to say, what a great place. That's why these are there. So what, what are we showing from Scripture? Man is guilty and under sin. Right? Condemned of God, cannot do good in and of himself, is just dead in their sins. What can we do? Well, if we could have, I'll invite Brother Bruce, Bruce Prentice up from Bethel Orthodox Presbyterian Church here in our good old Mandan, and he's gonna share with us Sovereign Election. And welcome Brother Bruce. Going to have to adjust a little bit here, I see. These old eyes aren't what they used to be. It is a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Reformed Christians have so much in common with particular Baptists. Um, The doctrines of grace are central to that, but of course the sovereignty of God is the key. Uh, There's a particular Baptist scholar that I have much respect for named Dr. John Gill from the 1700s. I have his large uh, commentary set and enjoy it and consult it, have consulted it often. So thank you for inviting me to uh, speak to you this morning. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I draw your attention to this morning to verses 28 through 31. This is the infallible and the inerrant word of the living God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. There ends the reading of God's word. Shall we pray? Father, we pray that as we look at this passage of Holy Scripture that you would open our hearts and open our minds to what you would teach us. Bless your word to us, we pray, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. There's an amusing story of a Hindu holy man, a mystic named Arao, who in 1966 announced that he would walk on water. Well, needless to say, it attracted quite a crowd, on the day that uh, he was to do this and the crowd gathered around and uh, it was a large pool uh, in Bombay, India. And the holy man prayerfully prepared himself for the miracle and a a solemn hush fell upon the assembled observers. And then Rayo walked forward to the edge of the pool glanced up to heaven and stepped forward onto the water. But immediately he plummeted into the depths of the pool. Sputtering and dripping wet and furious, he emerged from the pool and he turned angrily on the embarrassed crowd and said, one of you is an unbeliever. Fortunately, our salvation is not like that. It does not depend upon us, you, your faith, your believing. Because if it were as we have just learned, it would not happen. In spiritual matters, we are all unbelievers, we are all dead in trespasses and sin spiritually blind and unable to believe God, lost and without hope. But in these great verses of Romans 8, we are given the good news that our salvation does not depend upon us, but upon an omnipotent, sovereign God and his will. Because as we have seen, if God is to have a people for himself, if we are to be saved, it is God that must act because we are unable to. Because we are totally dead in sin and unable to believe. What the scriptures tell us is that God has acted. And what is surprising and interesting is that he acted before creation. This is a part of what is called the decrees of God, a chain of divine actions that result in the redemption of God's covenant people. These covenant people, often called the elect, Scripture calls us the elect, Paul describes here in the passage we just read in in two ways. Uh, from man's viewpoint, they are those who love God. From God's viewpoint, they are those that are called according to his purpose. What does it mean that Christians are the called? Verses 29 and 30 tell us, and they're really a parenthetical phrase, explaining in detail, if you will, who the called are. He says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Paul begins his explanation of who the called are by referring to them as those God foreknew. I, along with most evangelicals and perhaps you, I was taught that this phrase refers to God's prior knowledge. God's omniscience. He knows all things. He knows the future as well as the present. He knew before creation that we would choose Christ. He knew that we would be his people. And so, based on that, he Chose us. Election, then, is based upon God's foresight of what we would do. The Arminian position is that God knows all things. And so God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation, before the foundation of the world, the scripture says, Was based upon his foreseeing. He foresaw that we would believe in Jesus Christ. Well, this position election is not unconditional, it is conditioned grace based upon foreseen faith. God knew that we would believe in Christ. Well, in addition to being contrary to Scripture, which I will show you in a moment, is the case, this view has many problems. One of the things it does is it makes God's actions dependent upon man's actions. Man, our will, trumps God's will. And if true, it makes election meaningless. See, God is just an observer. He knows all and he sees all, but he's just an observer. But it also doesn't get around the issue of free will, which in essence is what they're trying to do. If God knew what we were going to do before creation and he predestined us to salvation, he determined to save us because what he saw that we were going to do, that faith would be rendered certain, wouldn't it? It would be unavoidable. Just as much as if God chose us of his own will. This view does not solve the Arminian problem of free will. It just changes the basis of it. But textually, their interpretation misunderstands what Paul says. Notice that he does not say God foreknew what we would do. But... Whom God foreknew. And Paul uses the masculine plural of the relative pronoun who. He is not stating that God foreknew what we would do. What Paul states is that God foreknew individuals. Whom. In fact, the scripture uses this word foreknow in this sense repeatedly usually indicates not prior knowledge, but an intimate relationship. So we should understand Paul's words in the sense of those upon whom God fixed his affection. This understanding of foreknown is not only grammatically demanded in this passage, it also is used this way consistently in Scripture for example, in Nahum 1.7, we read, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. So are we to think that God is ignorant of unbelievers, of those who don't trust in him? Of course not. This passage is not denying God's omniscience but stating that he has a special, loving relationship with the people of Israel, his people. And he knows them. And he knows them in an intimate, special way that he does not know the unbelieving nations. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says, this explicitly. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him, known by God. This word known is the same basic word as in Romans 8. It's not saying God knows about him, but God knows him. God knows everyone. He knows everything. He is omniscient. But the point that Paul is making is that the elect, the chosen of God, are known of God in a unique way. God has a special, intimate knowledge of those who are in Christ. And he does not have that same knowledge, that same relationship with the unregenerate. One more example from Romans 11.2. Paul says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Paul is speaking of national Israel here, but he uses the same exact word as in chapter 8, reflecting the words in Amos 3.2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Again, it's not denying God's knowledge of the heathen nations, but asserting God's intimate, caring relationship with Israel, the nation of Israel, his people, his covenant people, just as with believers in the church today. So what the Bible teaches and what Paul is saying here in Chapter 8 of Romans is that in eternity past, before creation, God fixed his affection upon certain individuals, the foreknown. These individuals were the objects of God's redeeming love and grace. Not because we would choose but because God chose. God chose. God sovereignly chose a people for himself. Based upon, the scripture says, his own counsel, his own purposes, he redeemed out of the world, out of darkness, a people, a covenant people for himself. The next divine action, Paul says, is that these individuals whom God foreknew were predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Election, predestined, words the world hates. The world of evangelicalism, by and large, hates. These individuals whom God fixes affection upon Before time began, before Satan fell, we're predestined to be like Christ. That word predestined means to determine before, it means to foreordain or to predetermine. So, what Paul is saying is that God fixed his affection upon certain individuals, he chose them in accord with his own wisdom and purposes and will. He appointed them to be the objects of his redeeming love and he determined that they would be saved in the future. This is unconditional grace. What Paul and the scriptures teach is that we are saved because God chose us and not because we chose God. As God puts it, we love him because he first loved us. Amen. Scripture is clear. Election is unconditional. It's not because of anything we do. It's not because of any good in us at all. It is God who exercises free will, Amen. not man. Now, the Bible's full of illustrations of this. We are told in Genesis chapter 6, for example, of the extreme wickedness of the world. So wicked that God determined to destroy all mankind and every living thing. And then we're told, verse 8, but. But God chose to show grace to a man named Noah. Noah. And as a result of that, we're told that Noah walked with God and became a righteous man. And God worked through Noah to preserve a people through his whole family as he judged the world with a flood. God chose Abram. Scripture is clear. Abram had no understanding of the true God. He was a pagan idolater. He lived in an idolatrous city. His family were idolaters. And yet God called him to himself and made a covenant with him. And as a result, not because of, as a result, Abraham became a man of faith, Hebrews 11. God chose Jacob. Jacob. He chose Jacob over his brother Esau and said the older shall serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Paul comments in Romans chapter 9, which many people would prefer was not in scripture. God chose Jacob when the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, so that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. God chose Saul of Tarsus. He wasn't a good guy. He was murdering and persecuting Christians. In fact, Jesus Christ, when he revealed himself to him, said, you're persecuting me. And yet God chose him and made him a vessel of his grace. No, these men did not choose God. God chose them. And he did so not because they were good, not because they believed, but before they had faith. Before they were even born, God chose them. Again and again, sovereign election is taught in the New Testament. Jesus himself said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Putting it another way, um, in Acts chapter 13, verse 48 he tells us that all who were appointed unto eternal life believed we could say that all the elect believed paul writes to the believers in second 2 Thessalonians 2:13 2, in the beginning god chose you unto salvation unconditional election is the express, clear teaching of the word of God. And yet the Arminians respond, wait a minute, if what you are saying is true, it's not fair. If God chooses as he wills, if he predestines to salvation, then how can he blame us for not believing? We can't resist God's will. It's not our fault. Well, interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul anticipated this very question. And so he writes in Romans chapter 9 and verse 20. He says, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply? Oh, Let's start with verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And indeed, That is the case. God does as he wills in the army of heaven and on earth. We may not be able to fully understand all of this or properly explain it, but the Bible teaches that the sovereign God, the eternal potter, unconditionally chooses and elects those who he foreknows and predetermines, predestinates, that they will be redeemed, they will be like Christ. And Paul states that those who are predestined are also called, as Pastor Fix mentioned, there's a chain, a golden chain from eternity past through time into eternity future as God calls out a people for himself from the world of darkness and sin to be his people. The term called is used in two ways. The first is what is referred to as a general call. It's the indiscriminate preaching of the gospel. We preach repentance and faith in Jesus Christ to all. We appeal to all to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. So we have Jesus saying, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The problem is those that are dead in trespasses and sins, as we just saw last hour, are unable to, to come, unable to respond, unable to believe. In my mind, total depravity is the key to all of the doctrines of grace. You need to understand man's true condition spiritually. And much of evangelicalism has swallowed Roman Catholic theology. The other use of the word call is the effectual call, which we will look at in a couple of hours. This is the work of God bringing or drawing the foreknown, the elect, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In this usage, only the elect of God are called and drawn. It's called irresistible grace. Here's what Jesus stated in John 6:44: No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And it's the foreknown, it is the elect that God draws by his Spirit. And those whom he called, he also justified. Justification is the declaration of God that those in Christ, the foreknown, the elect, are righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if we have time, which I don't, we could get into imputation. As our sins are imputed to Jesus Christ, who bore them upon the cross, and his perfect righteousness, he perfectly kept the law, is imputed to the believer. And those he justified, he also glorified. The final aspect of God's divine acts with his elect is their glorification. The glorification of those that God elected in eternity past, the glorification in the future is so certain that Paul states it in the past tense as an accomplished fact. Common grammatical usage God will certainly finish the work of redemption that He began before creation when He chose a people for Himself. The foreknown are predestined, they're called, they're justified, and they will be glorified, all in accordance with God's sovereign, eternal, perfect will. But why did God choose a people for himself? This is an amazing thing. Verse 29, that we might be conformed to the image of his son. God is separating out a people for himself from the world of sin. In the covenant language of Scripture, he is calling out individuals who will be his people and who will own him as their God. It's a, a phraseology in terms that's used many times both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The ecclesia, that is, the ecclesia in, in Greek, the church, are the called out ones. That's what God is doing. He's calling out of the world a people for himself. And God is working in his people, in the church, to make us more and more like Christ. In all of our actions, and all of our thoughts, that we might have the likeness of Christ, that we might reflect him in the world, that we might bring him glory, which is our chief end. Paul says something very similar to this in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 11. And he says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined, there's that word, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Just as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. But Paul very, probably has eternity in mind here as well. That is, when we are ultimately glorified in our resurrected bodies, we will perfectly conform to Jesus Christ. My time is almost up. John, put, John puts it in First John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet re- been revealed what we shall be, but we have known that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And this glorification that God has purposed for the elect one day We shall be seated in the heavenlies, as Paul puts it, and we will reign with Christ, not because of any worthiness in us, not because of how much faith we've had, but because he willed it, because God unconditionally gave to us undeserved grace. If you're born again, if you are a child of God, There is an unbroken chain that God has begun in you, and He will finish it. He set His redeeming love upon you before you were born, before creation, before the foundations of the world, and determined to redeem you from sin. He called you to Himself through the Word of Life by His Spirit. He justified you, made you righteous in Christ, not in yourself. And he promises to bring you into his presence someday in heaven. From beginning to end, our salvation is of the Lord. Doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God, election, are condemned and ridiculed and abused. Oh, you believe in Some kind of fatalism. Everything is set and determined. and We have no will. I've even been said to preach the doctrines of the devil. But I'll tell you, if you understand the doctrines of grace, they are teachings of scripture meant to comfort and to strengthen the people of God. God is for us. He is for us from all eternity. Amen. Who can be against us? Neither. Therefore Romans 8:28, we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Christian God is working through all the details of your life for your good. In the life of the elect child of God, everything is for your good. The accident, afflictions, the monotonous, and even sin. God is using all of these things to perfect you, to conform you to the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ, your Lord. The difficult things of life are simply... God's way of applying pressure to shape you. The difference between a waffle and a pancake is the presence of the waffle iron. And God puts us under the pressure of the waffle iron so that we might have the imprint, the pattern, the likeness of Christ. And that pressure might seem bad. Whether it's a physical illness I had a bout with kidney stones a few years back. And I'll tell you, there were times when I thought it would be better to be in heaven. And we go through these things. But we need to understand, even while we're going through them, that God is at work. And we're precious to God. He loves us from all eternity. We're his. And so what he's doing in our life, even the The evil things, the tragic things, the hard things are for good. For our good and for the glory of Christ, ultimately. If we resist God's pressure, unfortunately, he simply might apply more. (laughs) But it's still for our good. If we sin, he chastens us. Because he loves us and he chastens those whom he loves. But it's still for our good. Everything in life of the elect is for good and for his glory. What Paul is teaching in these verses is so important. First, it gives us assurance of salvation. It is not about how much faith you have, but God's power. And God's purposes. If God chose you, He will finish with you to the end. He will keep you to the end. This chain of events is totally in God's hands. That's why the psalmist could rejoice. He could go into battle, and the arrows will go on the right and on the left, but they won't come to me unless it's God's will, because I'm in God's hands. I won't even. Stub my toe against a rock apart from God's will. What a blessing it is to know we have a sovereign God. And he has chosen us and made us his own for a reason and for a purpose and for good. If you truly understand this doctrine of unconditional grace... You'll be filled with thanksgiving and praise for our God. You were dead in sin, unable to do any kind of eternal good. All your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And God set his love upon you. He sovereignly drew you and gave you life by his spirit and gave you saving faith. A result of regeneration, not a cause of it. This is, in the words of Pastor Fix, an amazing thing. (laughs) That God should show you, that he should show me, of all people, grace. God wants the best for you now, today, as well as for eternity So you can confidently accept his will for your life. You can follow his word, his commands, knowing that it will not only be best, but will lead to your personal blessing. Because for the elect of God, all things are working together for good because, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. And if you are in Christ, rest assured, God is for you. And He has been for you from before creation when He chose you for Himself for reasons that still are amazing. Unknowable, as we know our own hearts. And because he has done that, there is no power in heaven or on earth that can rest you, Jesus said, from his hand or his Father's hand. There is nothing that can separate you in heaven or on earth from the God who loves you and gave himself for you. Shall we pray? Our Father, and our God, we thank you for your love for us. We do not understand because we know our hearts. We know how sinful our, our hearts are, how rebellious our minds are, how resistant we are to you, and yet you love us. We have nothing to offer you, yet you love us. Oh, Lord, we rejoice in that and pray, Lord, that you might work in us greater trust and faith in you until that day when we shall see you face to face, without sin and without reservation, and we will be your people, and you will be our God. Work in us until that day, we pray, in the name of Christ our Lord, amen.